This is Paula Schmidt, and welcome to my theater of the mind, Evening's Kingdom, book two, episode one. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review on your preferred podcast platform and share the show with a friend. Your support really helps, and it means so much to me. This is an epic quest through an ancient, magical kingdom. As Uma, a reluctant young shaman, seeks her revenge against the king who killed her family. But guided by otherworldly allies and unlikely friends, Uma unlocks a whole new world, Evening's Kingdom, written and read by Paula Schmidt. This is Paula Schmidt. And thank you so much for listening. Coming to you today from a glorious, hot, and sultry day in Charleston, South Carolina, in a pale white room belonging to my dear friends, Jean and Dan. For all you super fans, please stay tuned at the end of the episode for some supremely personal side notes and to hear me read some truly lovely reviews, including one from a poet who changed my life. We continue back into the magic. Here begins book two of Evening's Kingdom, Flight of the Shaman. Chapter one, King Nortensing. For many seasons, the great goddess withheld the reins from Chalice. The sky turned her face away, showing the Yang peoples only her vast cheek pale and dry as a scraped skull, and a fathomless thirst took hold of all the kingdom. The mist gardens along the canyons blackened and shriveled away. No drought in history had ever run so long. The blood and milk of their antelopes was all that sustained many families. But as one moon turned after another without the rains, even the hardiest of the lopes began to die. The mighty Eel River sank away into the earth, a dried recollection of her former self, whose powerful flesh once rippled almost to the doorsteps of the villagers with an endless wealth of eels to eat. The trees along the shoreline were long vanished into cook fires and smoke baths, and so the soil could retain little moisture, cracked to the touch, and was barren. In the name of Goddix, King Nortensing said, sweeping his cloaked arm out grandly, and as one the vast body of generals and soldiers behind him turned and began to ascend Holy Oculus on foot to beg mercy of Godex and end the drought. Nor was still newly throned. His own father had been executed by the people, sacrificed to Godex to stop lesser drought. And although the new king was well-loved at first, now the people's affections were curdling away and all that kept Nor on the throne were his beloved soldiers. For now, there was plenty of water in reserve for his court, his military, and the highborn, but without any villagers left alive to turn the great sprawling spokes of the kingdom, all their future lay nameless. General Pau strode alongside him as the other generals and their units trailed back proudly, long columns of cloaks streaming all down the faces of the mountain, dreamlessly black. I have a good feeling about this, Pau said to him. There was dew in the valley this morning. Enough to harvest, he said, 
Pao looked at Nora gravely. The fog collector said yes. Good, he said. Nor touched her shoulder. See that a quarter of the water is given to the city's lopes, not the weakest, but those which are most likely to survive. They can turn a drop of water into ten drops of milk that will go farther. Pau nodded and called forward a courier to send down the message behind them. All throughout their ascent, the king would continue to be briefed, sending couriers down with his responses to all the corners of his kingdom. And in his work, Nor was comforted. He was most fully himself with his soldiers arrayed around him, felt that these men and women truly were his own hands, his feet, his teeth. His soldiers' belief in him was the salt in his blood, the very thoughts in his head, and the young king sometimes believed his consciousness resided not solely within him, but also within the hearts and minds of his military. But as they ascended the ancient shell path, the crunch of thousands behind him, for the first time in many years, Nor found himself thinking of his beloved Nejmi. How once, long ago, river became mountain, and mountain became river, together there in her long-ago bed. A serpent slid off the sun-warmed path before him, flickering away down into the undergrowth like a thought half-remembered, and suddenly he'd been standing there a long time. Here, at this sharp bend in the path, with its sheer drop straight down into the bright river below, how one could so easily slip and fall. Nor remembered a small boy who once nearly died at this place, only to be saved by the very oligarch he loathed. He did not need to look back at Weir Rothwell now to know that the old monster was remembering this too, smiling and nodding. Oligarchs remembered everything. They were like parents you never outgrew. But Weir Rothwell took Nor's pause as an invitation. Although the old man was fatter than ever, his small feet moved nimbly over the skittering rocks until he hovered beside the tall, dark-haired king as Nor climbed on. I should insist we walk more often, he said to Weir Rothwell. You're doing well after all, old man. For the old oligarch had made no secret about preferring to ride for the duration of their pilgrimage rather than walk, if special accommodations could be made for a frail, venerable old man. This is because I conserve my strength, Weir Rothwell said now, puffing along beside Nor, smiling the old lipless smile Nor knew so well, a fat red crescent moon across his liver-spotted face. I take no action until I am perfectly wedded. Until your holy sovereign insists you must walk, you mean, Nor said. The oligarch bowed. Ah, just so, my holy sovereign. Smiling dryly, Nor waved him away. General Pau was the only person alive whose company was never intrusive to him. As Nor glanced over to catch her eye, Pau grinned, like a bit of grease on a hot pan, that one, she said, quietly. He leaned towards her, almost smiling. Think he's cooking something? Nor said. It was no secret that Pau believed the oligarchs were nuisances at best, monsters of the court. Each oligarch supposedly represented ancient regions of Tensingland. But Pau plainly believed the creatures only represented themselves. Weir Rothwell represented Palmstone, and as Nor's queen mother was Palmstone born, he was goddess given to Nor at birth, just as the children born to Nor's own harem were overseen by the elderly oligarchs from each region of the kingdom his woman rose up from. Pau nodded. 
Always, my sovereign. But nothing we can't handle. Nor sighed and looked up. Tonight, I'd like to see chalice fill with the night. Let us sleep beneath the stars, my old friend. Pow smiled, like cadets. She turned back to gesture a soldier forward. She gave Nor's instructions, and the woman leapt on ahead to see that the royal field tents be arranged outside Nor's luxurious mountain palace. Of course, the keepers of the mountain palace would see to it that no detail was spared. The massive round tent would be lavishly appointed, with a deep, luxuriant bath of warmed water. There would be plush, rare furs, and campaign hammocks strewn with weaving soft as clouds. There would even be servant monkeys. Nor smiled to himself. Mountain attendants liked to amuse themselves with such creatures, and this had always delighted his mother. The exquisitely polite temple monkeys accepting her fine jewelry, soberly scampering away to put each item into its right place. And so it was. That night, he sat with Pau before his tents, watching stars prick out over the kingdom while lantern lights spangled up an answer below, until finally, all chalice was warm with its own light, like a reflecting pool full of stars. Although this was a pilgrimage, and not to be conducted in silence. He'd given the soldiers free reign over royal quarters. Now Nor and Pau could hear the wild, happy singing and shouting inside the mountain palace. They'd served warm, honeyed milk after dinner, and the sharply alcoholic, fermented antelope's milk so beloved of soldiers and traders across the kingdom had double the desired effects at altitude. Happy hearts, merry folk, Pau said, listening, as it should be. Nor said. Pau leaned back on her elbows, slightly tipsy herself. You spoil them, she said. You spoil us all, everyone except for yourself. Why not indulge yourself here and there? Nor took a sip from the special tisane made from the star-shaped flowers that grew outside Oculus. He'd abstained, as he often did, and still felt as clear and sharp as the night air. Your pleasure is as my own, Nor said. He woke well before first light, smiling to himself at the silence of the sleepers all around him. Praise Goddix, Nor thought. Bless my people, that this day might nourish us, the better to serve your will. Thank you. The men are happy. Perhaps they will fight for my life a while longer yet. He smiled grimly at the thought. But as Nor stepped from his hammock and into the silky robe his attendant held out for him, a thought came into his mind, which was not his own. Nor, come to me now, she said. And he would know that voice anywhere. It was Nejmi. The king froze, shocked. The monkeys pinning back the tent flaps turned to look at him, their pelts bright and pale in the cold early light as he rushed past barefoot. His long, silken robes sailing out behind him like wings as attendants rushed to their feet silently after him, hastily gathering up his slippers and trousers as the king ran alone towards the Oculus cave. As always, there were holies chanting outside the Oculus. Seeing the king appear over the rise, the holy men, women, and thirdlings all rose as one, bowing as Nor approached them in the dim light. And they were not surprised to see him. He was expected. Their hands were warm as they greeted him, as they led Nor through the narrow entrance towards the pool deep within the sacred cave. 
He'd not been here since he was a child. And the oily, hissing light of their torches, the shadows cast down from the smooth, wetly gleaming cave formations on either side of their passage, it was all just as he remembered. He remembered the names of the holy formations as he saw them rise out of the darkness. Ice Maiden, Catling King, all of them as if born by torchlight. He heard the pool in the distance, louder and louder, the echoes of condensation slipping down the sides of the smooth cave into the dark, silent waters. The impossible wealth of it, of so much clean water, all gathered in one place, for here was the true chalice, vessel of waters. And then he was with her, with Nejmi, surrounded with her as he was by holy waters, nor wading deep into the pool as the holies danced, nakedly chanting. The light of Oculus from above flooding into his heart and soul and blood, and Nejmi was everywhere, everywhere, all around him. And her voice was just as he remembered, both sigh and caress at once. Nor how I have waited for you, even with his eyes closed, nor could see the pale green light of Nejmi's ghost, of her energy rushing into him. She was in him as so many revelations at once that Nor was afraid he would not remember them all. My beloved, Nejmi said, I've come to you because you must protect and preserve the people. Not just our tribe, Nor. All the tribes, just as they are, as they themselves want to be. Love is surrender, my love. The low, whispering voice twined through him, so strongly he felt dizzy. Nejmi, Nejmi, let me, Nor said, turning, searching for her. Let me see you, listen to me, the ghost said. We have so little time. Love is letting others witness your failures, Nor. Let your failures be loved and forgiven just as much as your successes. This is love. Love is surrender. And then the cold spirit in you will die, my Nor, and you will be free. Nor was startled. The cold spirit, he said. But I do love you. I always love you. Nor's love for Nejmi was his one true thing. Are you a ghost? Nejmi, I, I can't bear this to hear you again and not see you. The coldness in your mind, she said. The stone. It isn't you, Nor. It is an energy. The same energy that possesses the oligarchs, but it is not your own. If you love yourself as you truly are, and let yourself be loved as you truly are, all energies which are not your own will fall away. You will heal, and others will heal. See this, Nor. Love myself, Nor said, or tried to say. His voice broke on the words, but the chanting around him only grew louder, and he was grateful. For if Nejmi's voice in his mind was not real, nor did not wish to be either, the ghost whispered on, Do not let yourself be controlled or try to control others. Just be. Love others just as they are and let yourself be loved just as you truly are. Love is freedom. Nor felt the chanting soar in his blood. Oh, my lady, come closer, he said. To hold you in my arms again, that is all I ask. Yet he knew this was as if the sun longed to hold the moon in his arms for just an instant. And what then? If the sun ever held the moon, it was the end of life 
as all their world knew it. Meditate on this that I have told you, and you cannot be occupied, Nejmi's ghost said. Or was it Godex himself who flooded Nor's mind? Could it be both? He swam with confusion. The words went on. Feel the inside of your body. Your hand from the inside, do you feel it? Yes, Nor said. Your chest from the inside, do you feel it? Yes. Let your thoughts be as clouds. Let them cross the sky of your mind. You are not your thoughts, Nor. You are not your body. You are not the sky of your mind. You are we. You are all of us, all who have ever existed and will ever exist. A body unbroken, unbroken, he said, wanting to taste her words in his mouth. But now the sound of Nor's own voice broke the spell, and suddenly all the priestesses around the waters fell silent. They stood frozen, their arms still raised to the dawn as it filled the oculus cave, warming the holy waters. The communion was ended, Nezmi's ghost, the goddess, whoever it was, was gone. In a daze, Nor walked back to the mountain palace, letting his servants replace his damp robes as he strode. As Nor returned into his tents, he startled the temple monkeys, who sat on the ledge of his bath drinking the stale water with tiny cupped hands. No matter, have it all, he said to them, but find Weir Rothwell. I would speak with him. The summoned oligarch found his king pacing wildly up and down the terrace outside the palace, where Rothwell could hardly keep up with him. I've been thinking, Nor said, before Weir was even quite beside him on the terrace. What if each clan of my kingdom elected representatives from amongst them? To give counsel to the respective oligarchs, a man, a woman, a thirdling, the people would have a voice. Solutions we may not have considered to local problems we may not have. Weir Rothwell froze and then flushed purple. He swept down onto one knee. But your honored oligarchs speak for your people, my sovereign. We speak with one voice, nor waved for silence. De-escalating conflicts, allowing tribes to celebrate their old ways. There is much to learn, much we do not know, much we have forgotten. This drought, perhaps there are old ways. Tribal elders still know to bring the rains. At this, Weir Rothwell, who had waddled up after him again, now stopped and leaned on the smooth railing, wheezing dramatically to catch his breath. He shook his head violently, soft throat and chins wobbling as if he were choking on a bone. These old ways are forgotten and gone, your highness, he said. The stuff of children's tales. Nor turned and looked at him. The old ways are alive in every stone and tree, oligarch. Children know this. We teach them to forget. We want them to forget. That must stop. Still panting, where Rothwell beckoned to the servants who stood in their eternal attendance. Normally he would not deign to look at the servants, but now, to break the king's gaze, the oligarch turned and spoke to them tenderly. Please, children, he said. Milk, a little milk for a very old man. My breath fails me. Let the holy beverage heat my cold blood. No, Nor said. Let it be water instead. You must be able to think. This is my will, Weir Rothwell. I have spoken. Now make it so. The next morning, Nor returned to Oculus, his heart in his throat. Since he'd heard her last, he thought of nothing but Nezmi's beautiful voice, her words in his mind. Perhaps, 
Somehow, he could even stay there. Pow could to and fro for him. She'd be glad to. But as he climbed over the final rise, he saw there were no priestesses meditating outside the mouth of the cave. That was odd in itself. To his knowledge, the mouth of Oculus had never once been unattended. Nor strode inside, his servants rushing to keep up with him. I have returned, he said. Silence. There were no holies within, either. Wordlessly, the servants raced to light the torches before him as Nor entered the darkness alone. Even the shadows seemed to be in flight. The sacred pool of the oculus was silent, empty, and dead. Chapter 2 Uma The Yang villagers stood staring in the alleys between their tents and mud domes, glaring at the Chiriklo caravan as it passed. That wasn't unusual especially towards a caravan that had execution staff swinging from their carts. But something about the brazen hostility as one group after another swiveled to watch them pass made Tolu turn to Ogadai. After many years traveling together, the younger executioner well knew what his one-time teacher was thinking. Don't seem friendly, Tolu said, but if we keep riding, we'll have to spend another night in the desert. Might be better if we camp here tonight. We need water. Ogadai nodded silently, considering the landscape before them. The inside of his nose was so dry it was crusted with blood. They were all being careful not to waste the moisture in their mouths. The rocky path through the village was as sharp as its inhabitants seemed to be, and could easily lame a distracted lope or cut one of the children. The light was beginning to go and he didn't like the idea of traveling such a road by darkness any more than he liked to think about camping anywhere near people who clearly despised them. On the dunes just beyond the village, their backs would be to the open desert and unfamiliar terrain. Times had changed, and now even executioners sanctioned by the king himself were not safe from raids. It was bad luck and worse luck, but which was which? Ogadai slowed his lope, waiting to come abreast with Uma, the Wutar healer driving her medicine cart behind Tulu. She and Tulu liked to take turns running point. It gave one's animals a break to follow in the tracks made by others. As Ogadai came alongside them, Uma's huge silky gray catling, Silvern, bared its yellow fangs at him and flattened its ears. Ogadai's blood ran cold. Silvern secretly terrified Ogadai ever since a wild catling had killed his son. But no one knew this except, it seemed, silver in itself. Ogadai did his best to not even glance at the hateful thing as he looked to Uma, asking for her thoughts with a glance. She stared ahead stubbornly. Ogadai, the thin elder with fiercely intelligent eyes, how she hated him. Uma wanted to tell him how much she hated him, the way he was always twisting and using Tulu. And then Ogadai thought Uma could be as easily misled as the rest of his caravan. She hated that too. But more than anything, Uma hated the part of herself that secretly wished she could feel as if she were truly part of the family. After all, now even Nanaline, the Yang washerwoman they'd rescued from a sand lion seasons back, seemed comfortable enough among the Chirglow. But Uma was Wutar, and all Wutar were born unwelcome. The world of Tensingland all but spat them back into the mystery. Uma's homeland, Ulali, 
was raised by the king's soldiers when she was just a child, and she'd not seen the face of a single other living Wutar since. Uma stared ahead silently until Ogodai cleared his throat, seeing he'd have to waste a few words after all. I'd be grateful for any insights you have, he said stiffly, about camping here. It doesn't sit right with me. They don't like us, Uma looked away. She was strong enough now that she could often sense intentions. But they won't hurt us. They're unsettled about something else. A hardship in their village. Silvern swung his big head around threateningly at Ogodai's antelope, sending the animal shying back. He reined it in quickly. Is there water close by? He said. For Uma had been given the gift of water witching by a shaman's ghost some villages back. Uma nodded. We'll be upon it tomorrow. Good, Ogodai grunted. Tolu is tired. Uma laughed. You're tired, you mean? I'm old, Uma. Almost dust. I'm always tired. But Ogodai was relieved the girl knew water was nearby. Small chance this village would share access to any allotment they had. Uma pulled her cart up alongside Tolu's and began to set up camp. Tolu watched her, expecting guests, he said leaning against his own wagon, Lamados. He was shirtless, his skin the darkest of dark ambers against the red lacquer of his wagon. He crossed his ankles, stretching his neck a little to lift his dreadlocks off his neck, feeling his sweat instantly evaporate into salty grit on his skin. Uma only looked over at him. Tolu pretended to study the horizon behind her. It's just you don't usually bother. I'm not settling in myself, he went on. Not sure if I'm even going to hobble my boys tonight. Might leave them in harness. Those villagers back there, Tolu raised his big shoulders. Looked pretty ghoulish. Uma shifted quietly. I think we frighten them more than they frighten us. Still, doesn't sit right with me. Tolu watched Ogadai, Fern, and Lalore as they went about establishing an elaborate camp of their own. Much more than was necessary. He understood well enough what Ogadai was up to. His wife and daughter enjoyed settling in and making a comfortable camp, even if just for a night. If Ogadai asked them not to, the woman would know it was because he was afraid. The caravan's elder had become more tender now than in the past. Dangerously so, Tolu thought. But he understood that, too. He sighed. If there's a run in the night, they're going to lose everything. Uma only smiled. Why worry? I thought you knew where to find more of everything, Tolu. He laughed. Look at Fern there, growing up and becoming a woman right before our eyes. It's good she's patched things up with her parents. Before long, she'll be finding another caravan. Mark my words. It was Uma's turn to sigh. The seasons run like rabbits. Every night, I feel as if my youth is further from me. She felt her face grow hot then, and busied herself with silver. Perhaps, Tolu said his eyes smiling. You'll slow enough not to escape me any longer. Uma burst into startled laughter. Off with you. Leave me be. Tolu glittered happily. <laughs> I know you like me more every day. Uma squatted down, running her hand over her cart's wheels, checking for cracks to mend. Go on. Tolu grinned. I'm going to find a stone and seek counsel on this, as you taught me. Uma shook her head, grinning. I am going to put one in your ear if you don't leave me be. Nightfire drew furtive trade from the villagers, but everything the strangers brought to the exchange was nearly worthless 
The fang they brought was dried improperly, just wild stuff that they'd bagged up with the dews still on it. Ordinarily, the family wouldn't have even traded sand for such. But Uma knew, watching items exchange hands, that the family was disturbed by this village and hoped to sow goodwill. Yet she felt no malice coming from the village people. They were uneasy about something, but not violent. So perhaps the fear came from within the cheer club themselves. Theirs was a long passage. Wariness could make one afraid. Uma sat pondering this, turning her hands to warm them at the fire. And one of the Yang villagers came over to her, a squatty little man, his pink scalp shining brightly through thin hair. You're not Chiriklo, he said to her cheerily. His wet, bulging eyes gleamed hungrily down her body. Aren't you clever, Uma said. Oh no, he said happily. <laughs> Never that. I know better than to be clever. If a man makes himself useful, the world uses him up and spits him out. Uma looked towards her wagon. This was why she preferred not to linger with the family after dinner. But now she would need to find a gracious way to slip away from the conversation, in case the unsavory man might be here for trading. And do you know why? The old man said slyly. When someone becomes powerful, the cold spirits find them. The lizard spirits find them and use them up. Uma paused. What? He smiled. She felt a scalding awareness of Laxus's gift. The tattoo suddenly warm as a hand on her back. Warmer still was the unwelcome fact that a Yang was suddenly cautioning her. Couldn't you just fight such a thing off? Uma said, too carelessly. Ask Godex for blessings or some such. Of course not, he said. Why not? Uma said, feeling suddenly as if she'd stepped into one of Tolu's fairy tales, as if she were young after all, merely a child trying to glean understanding from some amoral being. A little man glinted at her. Oh, there's many kinds, and they're all stronger than us, older than us. They're ancient things. They've been here a long time. They'll be here long after we're gone. Wanting what they've always wanted, power, control. <laughs> but what do I know? I am old, I'm no one, he laughed to himself. I'm nobody, nearly dead. <laughs> Maybe that's what they are, death. I talk too much, my family always says. I'm not trying to put fear in you, girl, but hear this. If you're worried, you're not one of them, see? Not yet. Can't be, because you're worried. He nodded to himself, sculling down the last of his milk in an impressive gulp for such a small man. There's two more of you at Ulali, you know, he said primly, wiping his mouth. Uma almost choked, trying too late to scoff. Her thoughts raced. Other Wutar. It couldn't be. I was the only one left. I know I was. How could it be? She made her voice flat, uninterested. Two more what? She said. Wutar he said. What else? That's what you are. I expect that's where you're headed next, huh? To Ulali? Back home? Just for the trade, of course, he leered. We are far from Ulali, Uma said calmly, but her heart was racing. She had the strangest feeling the old man could hear it. Just so, he said. One of you blood eaters survived the killings there. She married a soldier. Can you imagine? Scandal, but of course they do things different by the sea. 
He smacked his gums together. Even have a daughter. Doesn't look like him. Looks like her, Bluison. He shook his head, grinning. Then, darting a glance around at Uma slyly, he leaned forward to catch Ogodai's eye. So, uh, this one. Is she, uh... Ogodai drew himself up stiffly. Whatever you might be asking next, the answer is no. And I caution you for your life, old man. The villager curdled. Oh. As he hobbled off, Uma found she could breathe again. She nodded at Ogodai, who nodded back. And for once, a warmth passed between them. But she was unsettled. Was her laxus a lizard spirit? A cold spirit? He'd said he was her teacher. Uma leaned forward, elbows to knees, and stared out towards the horizon. No one had ever spoken to her of lizard spirits before. And yet she knew what the old man said was true. To learn anything from a yang, to be surprised by a yang, felt hideous. She whistled silver and over. A night run might help her outrun the small, insistent voice in her mind. But then, a figure appeared over the rise. By the light of the moon, Uma saw a thin young woman astride a skinny lope, pulling a small sled painfully along behind them. The village girl stared down at the cheer-closed night fire, her gaze running anxiously from face to face. And quickly, Uma stepped forward, raising a hand in greeting. She called out to her, Welcome, and well met, traveler. The answer came as if out from Uma's own past, frightened and painfully young. Uma? Of Ulali? The girl brought her antelope into the circle of firelight, dismounting gracefully. On the sled lay a dying woman, stiff with pain. And Uma bowed. Well, may it please you. How may I be of service? This is Paula Schmidt. And thank you so much for listening. So, book two, here we go. I'm curious about your thoughts on these first chapters as I get all our chess pieces into place on the board. In next week's episode, Noor's reign is in great jeopardy, and Uma performs a healing for a dying medicine woman of her enemy tribe, the Yang. Epic worlds crash towards each other. As I live and grow alongside this story and share it with all of you, well, first of all, I can't believe you're still listening. And since you are, I figure we're probably simpatico, like-minded. And some of the issues we face, the things we long for, might be the same. I love a good morning routine before work, and for years, this was it. Get my ass up at 5 a.m meditate, sit in the dark, and write black espresso. Then I do a quick workout shower and hit the workday running. But things have shifted. I'm experimenting with being more kind to myself. Sleep is so important. There are studies showing that if you get between six to eight hours of good sleep each night, you can drastically reduce your risk of dementia and Alzheimer's. I've mentioned my Nana 
my namesake, whom I love very much, she has Alzheimer's. So I sleep a little later these days, like six, seven hours. And then first thing, I get outside, spend some time in natural sunlight. I do some Wim Hof breath work, maybe a little yoga, maybe some meditation. Then I come inside and yes, still with the coffee, but you know what I've been doing lately? Letting myself do lately is journaling, pen and paper. I never let myself do this before. Mornings were for writing, for making worlds. And whenever I've kept a journal, it's well, just for remembering things. This journaling lately is more like working through things. I absolutely love it. And I'm wondering if you might enjoy the same. I wanted to talk about a few things I've been mulling over because of it and the questions that got me there. If you're a journaling sort of person yourself, you might want to grab a pen and a paper. If not, no worries. You can just think along. Okay, but first, real quick, a super sweet review from Rugkabwab. I'm sorry, I don't know how to say your username. Via Podbean. Rugkabwab writes, Evening's kingdom pulls you in from the very first page. I look forward to my coffee every morning while listening. I wish I could make everyone listen to this book. (laughs) Thank you very, very much, my dear, for taking the time to let me know. I'm so happy to think of you enjoying coffee with this story. I love my coffee, and I'm glad Evening's Kingdom goes well with it. For you. Sort of a biscotti for the mind. I hope that you continue to enjoy the story. Also, another long overdue thank you to the marvelous Miss Brian Burke and the fabulous Mrs. Jean LaBelle who gave me incredible line edits and overarching feedback for this story. I will forever be grateful. Brian has some ecstatic news of her own. She is newly a mother. Welcome to the world, Timberbell. I'm so excited to meet you someday. Okay, so you guys who grabbed your pens, here's what I wanted to ask you. As we deepen into the story, there are behavioral patterns certain characters have relied on to survive difficult circumstances. But in order to grow, we have to question our patterns. And so I want to ask you, what patterns from your childhood are you repeating now? What is it that you are calling in now? Are there different patterns, different routines? you think might assist in calling it in. Kevin Kelly asks us to consider, if you do the same thing that you did today, 364 more times in a year, will you be where you want to be? What routine do you imagine the person you wish to be would have? I'll say it again. What patterns from your childhood are you repeating? What is it that you're calling in And what patterns, maybe a different routine, do you think might assist with this? My lovely friend Raquel, she says the other day that she feels like she isn't who she is yet. She's on the other side of a crisis. She's an incredible survivor and is just absolutely passionate about life, deeply living and experiencing her life. And now that she's on the other shore, more or less, of this really Let's hope it's the most difficult time in her life that she ever has to experience. 
and she doesn't know who she's going to be. She can't wait to find out. I just love that. She's just absolutely open and curious about everything before her. Everything is a fresh page. So here's where these journaling questions came from and how they've helped me. This is, uh, this is super confessional. And I'm a, I'm a little bit self-conscious about putting this out here. But again, I do think if you're still listening, probably pretty simpatico. So here we go. So as you know, if you've subscribed to my email list, I've started interviewing other artists for the website. On eveningskingdom.com, you can listen in for free. The world is full of wonders, and I am just tickled. Listening to the secret processes of other artists, their stories, their adventures, the words they live by. Now, me personally, I'm a mess. In questioning other people, we'd be remiss if we never question ourselves. Journaling is such a great way to do this, to really work your shit out, and it's free. Getting super honest on the page, just pen and paper, working out hangups and whatever, because that's the thing. You don't have to keep it, and maybe you shouldn't. Just tear the pages up, make a mess, leave no trace. Pen and paper. Okay, so here's where that first question came from. I realized something just out of the blue. It's one of those things that hits you and it's the most obvious thing in the world, but somehow you just never noticed it. Growing up in the Midwest, I had a rough time for a lot of reasons, but principally because I just had this unshakable feeling that there was something really wrong with me. I did not fit in. I was one of those kids who planned to grow up and be a cat. I was most definitely not a person. <laughs> I was going to marry my cat when I was old enough. From the beginning, I only ever cared about art and nature. The stuff which seemed to drive the society around me, family, friends, teachers, objects, social status, games, I just could not care less about. I mean, I remember, this is really nerdy. <laughs> we were playing the hokey pokey in kindergarten and <laughs> I, I wouldn't do it. And I was like, this is dumb. It makes me want to throw up because it's so dumb. <laughs> and I got in trouble and the teacher trying to make me do it. And so I threw up and then I had to sit in time out. <laughs> uh, yeah. Fucking, I'm not kidding. I was a weirdo. I will never forget when one of my aunts got really serious with me and she was like, Paula, you cannot be a cat because you are a girl. And one day you're going to be a woman. Like this is this great thing. She drops me off at school. And, oh, super bleak day. <laughs> I will never forget just looking around like, Fuck. <laughs> it's important to consider how deeply kids experience things. They just don't have the words yet. Or maybe they don't feel safe talking to adults about what they're going through. And of course, that's true for plenty of us full-sized people as well. We party-sized people. 
as opposed to bonsai. I have a small friend right now. He has a lot of, uh, he's going through a lot of things at school. And so he talks a lot about bears and alligators. And, you know, obviously these are subconscious and conscious ways of working out these these stressors, these new things. It's ways of understanding and digesting this. So his amazing grandmother talks to him about the habitats where those animals feel safe and these sorts of conversations. And for children who want to be animals, that's okay. Be an animal. You don't have to rush into human society. Maybe we need all the perspectives. And the people who are called towards something a little different than being a firefighter. That is okay. (laughs) Anyway, I digress. I'm always low-key thinking about patterns and narrative arcs and ambient hiss in my mind. Anyway, so all this backing up. The other day it hits me that, for God's sake, I'm the only one in my entire family who's an artist. That's why I felt so completely wrong all the time. I've got like 30 cousins on each side. Both my mom and dad have a ton of siblings, an absolutely awesome family. I'm pretty close to a lot of them, but we don't have any painters, filmmakers, musicians, writers. I didn't know any people like that growing up. And I kind of, this will sound dumb to you young ones, but remember, we didn't have the internet yet. So I kind of, child's mind, assumed artists were all dead. And I was told again and again by well-meaning adults, of course, that art was just a hobby. It isn't what a person does with their life. Anyway, this is a gigantic aside. I swear I am taking you somewhere. Stay with me. I was also a Catholic school kid. And as you can probably imagine that did not go so well. I used to argue with the priests. I was very intense, very stubborn, very quiet. <laughs> One of the teachers, I am forever grateful, she recognized me somehow. And in the second grade, she made sure I was put in classes with this other wonderful weirdo child who immediately became my dear friend, Jilly. Peanut butter and Jilly. Thank you, Mrs. Duffer. Jill is also incidentally accursed with this writing disease, and she is still my very dear friend. She has a very adult job, so I won't say her last name. I believe she's thinking of a pen name for her own endeavors. Anyway, we've found such refuge in each other, and her parents love and support the arts. I spent all this time at their house. They basically raised me. So, here's the pattern. My family, I love my family, but there I was, this little kid, eldest of six, and when I was at home, my job was to raise everybody else, and you know, Paula, just keep your mouth shut, stop saying weird things, and act normal, stop being so strange. And I don't mean to make myself sound totally benign. I, to babysit, I would tell my siblings horror stories about the garbage men, how they were actually collecting little kids, and if they weren't good, da-da-da-da, June bugs were vampires and all kinds of <laughs> stuff that they remember not so fondly and fondly now, you know. Um, so anyway, 
I was always having this experience of just being wrong all the time. I was the wrong answer to every question their lives seemed to be asking. Now, if you're a family, thank you for listening. And this is making you bristle. Please consider it's coming from my memory of a child's eye view. And I'm just thinking aloud here. Anyway, this is what I did. I took refuge with animals. I'm a huge animal person. Spent all my waking hours with our cats and dogs. I mucked stalls at a local barn so I could have free riding lessons. And of course, whenever I could, I took refuge with Jill and her family, who loved me as I was. <laughs> and they really talked to me. They had gorgeous books lying around and art on the walls, and I felt safe as myself with them. We'd go to art museums and watch the moon coming up in the fields, all sorts of things. And I just sort of tried to serve both masters. I didn't try to be something I was not, because I couldn't, but I did try to not talk or ask about the things I really wanted to know, and in general just keeping my mouth shut, because my family just shut me down. Glazed eyes. Ugh, Paula, what? Incidentally, side note, thyroid stuff, the throat, just saying. And this was all very well-meaning. They wanted me to jump into that circle-shaped slot, I guess, so that I'd be safe from their perspective. At school, they pulled me out for testing, and I just learned this recently. My mom didn't want them to put me in the advanced classes because she didn't want me to feel different. Everything was so well-meant, but, you know, if you're still listening... I bet you know. I bet these are all very familiar feelings. Pretty much textbook scenarios for INFP, INFJ, INTJ. I've got a feeling a lot of you guys know those call signs, yeah? <laughs> it's such a relief once you understand you're a perfectly normal introvert. But in Kansas in the 90s, we just didn't know. In high school, I skipped so much school my first year that even though my grades were fine, I had to present a note from a psychiatrist to pass. No idea what the note said. And then, of course, I just totally dropped out. I was really a mess, really lost, really angry. I was hospitalized for depression. They didn't know what to do with me, tried to put me on a bunch of meds, and I refused to take them. Then realized I had to pretend to take them and just lie, basically, until I could get discharged. Finally get back home, more certain than ever that society had no place for me, and I ran away into the woods with my dog, some homemade hardtack, and these milk jugs that I'd fill up with water at a gas station bathroom, and a giant stack of library books, which included Jack Kerouac, Gary Snyder, and John Kabat-Zinn's Full Catastrophe, living, which is about meditation. Their words saved my life, introduced me to meditation, Zen Buddhism, and tilted my kaleidoscope up to the sun forever. I ended up getting my high school degree, thank God, through a remote learning thing through the University of Columbia, and my parents kind of backed off me. Uh, so, moved out when I was 17, and things got much better. But check this out. I recognize that I am totally subconsciously, well, until now, 
still repeating this entire pattern with my adult life. I'm surrounded by all these wonderful people whom I love, people who you know seem to like me back. But again, overall, in general, in our day-to-day -day crowd of friends in South Carolina, I'm still a bit of the wrong answer. And I think that's on me. I'm trying to make this interior fantasy world an external shared world for other dreamers, while also trying to serve two masters and hold up the sky, wife and professional, because you know, I do have a day job. I wish I have to be relatively normal. <laughs> I've had a few miscarriages, which was incredibly hard at first, especially the first one, but I'm beginning to realize that maybe they have been some strange species of gift from the universe. To pause and reconsider my path. To not repeat my old, old path. It feels that way now. I have a lot of friends, but my closest is Genevieve, who is also, at her core, an artist. And her parents are these wonderful, lovely, poetically-minded supporters of the arts. She sings and he writes. <laughs> and I am literally right now recording at their house <laughs> because we've been living in a school bus in the woods, right? But again, overall, most of the people we know are not inclined towards, let's call them directions of inquiry. Directions and openings I am just completely obsessed with and curious about. And see, I mean, down to the letter G, I've been repeating my entire childhood without at all meaning to do so. And I want to change. And recognizing this helps me to change. I want to share a vein with the other dreamers out there to really deepen and nurture each other. I am calling in the stars of my sky. Let us together be deepened and nurtured within a community of artists, writers, Tantricas, queen makers. Let's raise a tide, learning from and helping to expand the influence of other artists, other dreamers, rising in this tide with you, my dear listeners, and perhaps together even seriously exploring new shores of mind and experience, we could evolve consciousness. So I know this is nuts, but also. Is it? Eh. I had this idea to reach out to other artists and thinkers and interview them. It is an excuse, my friends, probably super transparent, to really deeply spend time, soul time, learning from people I admire, listening, just being together, dreaming together, and, I realize, rewriting my patterns. Because in my soul, I am longing for this. I have a few of you in my close constellation now. You know who you are. God, I love you. I love you. And I'm longing for more. As I said to my musician friend Joe Davies, one life is not enough. I want to drown in it, to dissolve and grow. And I know I've learned that we're only as isolated as we believe. It feels so good. You can listen to my conversations with the writer and Alaskan Pat Galt, and now to the amazing poet laureate of Martha's Vineyard, Justin Aaron, that's 
A-H-R-E-N, Justin Aaron, via eveningskingdom.com. And there's a bunch more coming. Ultimately, between podcasting seasons of story, I'm planning to release seasons of interviews. And to say these conversations are feeding my soul is underplaying the experience by a mile. And I love sharing them with all of you. Okay. (laughs) So, some thoughts I've been thinking into as I marinate in these ideas. As we live towards our highest good, being the version of ourselves as we wish ourselves to be, taking actions in that direction, we might be saying no to some people, maybe even to lots of people. Personally, (laughs) again, this is a bit messy. I am a bit messy, but I think, I know, I have a feeling this will resonate, so I'm just going to put it out there. So, I mentioned I'm the eldest of six, four boys, two girls. But years ago, at the very start of the opioid epidemic, before most people, including ourselves, understood that there was an epidemic even happening, we lost one. My brother, James, he was so full of love, but not for himself. And he really did not want to be here. He overdosed. I didn't know how to help him. When I was just drinking, I was there for him. I tried to listen and to hold space and share books and all of it. All the things that had helped me through my own dark times. But this was years ago. I didn't understand. I didn't believe that addiction was an illness. Which it is. And so at that time... I absolutely could not empathize with where he was at, at all. And when he turned to substances, chemicals, I could, I just couldn't. My dad had had a stroke. I went back home to help him, and James was just spiraling, totally off the rails. And seeing our dad's mortality, that was the beginning of the end for him. And I was so angry, so unbelievably angry at James at the time. In my mind, he was making this difficult situation about himself instead of being there for our dad. Although, of course, the whole situation was, in reality, about all of us, not just our dad. These things are family diseases. Other members of my family were really, really there for James, but I couldn't do it. I made so many mistakes. I was very small. I was deeply unkind. I still stand in awe of my brothers and my sister, our parents, the way they were there for him. He was in and out of sobriety for a few years after that. And there was one time I was back home visiting, and this day when he was really trying. He'd even gotten up early to work out at the same time he knew I worked out. I'm sure he just wanted to spend some time with me, but I just couldn't even look at him. I was so angry at him still, and I I could feel in my throat this knot, this, yeah. Uh, and I said, you know, James, I'm sorry. I know you're trying. I can't smile at you. I can't even look at you, but I'm, I'm proud of you for trying. I know it's hard. And the effort it must have taken for him to smile back, just to smile, uh, knowing that I couldn't even look at him. I was so angry. It was really hard. And we lost him, you know, maybe a year later. 
We lost our James and I really miss him. I know I failed him, but also that he loved me anyway, just as I was. I mean, remember, he hated himself. So the way I treated him, I'm sure he thought he deserved it. You know, the whole thing with Nortensi in the cave, with Nejmi's ghost, let yourself be loved as you are. It is so hard. It's hard to give that one. It's hard to receive that. And um, these are all this, this long story is why I felt like I should share these questions. Because in writing about all this in my journal, I realized something. And this, this is why I wanted to share this with you guys. So many families have these things happening. Maybe it can help someone. The other artist, the only other artist, it was James. Towards the end of his life, he started making music. He even sold a song for a thousand bucks for some guy to sample it. I mean, wow. When he was doing okay, that's what we would talk about, art and music, and I'd encourage him to write. He'd say, no, no, I can't, or whatever. But you know what? After he died, we'd found three songs that he had written, and they were poetry, raw, wild, bleak, and really, really dark. And they were so beautiful. He'd never shown any of us. So there he was, all along right beside me. And I am a piece of shit. I remember there was one night, somebody's wedding, and we were drinking. And we had this moment. I grabbed the back of his head. We're forehead to forehead, as you know how you get. And I said, you and me, we are the dark ships. We have to stick together. We have to sail together. And that is how we'll find our way. You know, and the look in his eyes is, yes, yes, we will. And when I remember James, that's what I remember. But I left him, my little brother, I left him behind. People who are having addiction issues, my core level, I still just can't. Every now and again, somebody will try to strike up a friendship who's dealing with that stuff, and I just cannot handle it. I know this is a raw spot, a weak spot in me, and I'm not there yet. So at this point, I lovingly disengage. I try to love them where they are, as they are, but to be honest, only from a distance. I know it's not for us to fix other people, to try to save them or control how they feel, how they feel about me, themselves, their life, da-da-da-da. But to just love someone when they're in that state and to be present with them, love them, I'm not strong enough. To love someone and be their friend when they're not their own friend and not be trying to change or save them, man, a family disease it has me too. Sometimes I think you have to set up these boundaries and honor where you are in reality. And doing so is honoring the other person too, really, being honest. Respecting them enough to tell the truth 
and to tell yourself the truth about what you can and can't handle. I had to do this the other day, someone I don't know well, just out of the recent past, she sort of tried to latch on and man, I said hello and I said goodbye. I mean, completely honest, I wished her all the best with her life and then I blocked her in every way I knew how. It was an interesting friendship not meant to be from the start because uh, one of the first things she said to me was, you know, I was witnessing her having a little spiral and she's like, girl, you know, you trigger me. You are so calm. I see you and I think, I want to be like that. Why am I not like that? Now, I can open a big can of not chill, <laughs> but for the most part, my affect is probably pretty calm and focused. Although, as you know, I am also excitable, especially about art and all things creaturely. Anyway, we sort of tried. There's a part of me I just love, love, love the people who are really out there. <laughs> but I knew I could feel and see all those old rhythms that I know so well. And nope, nope. I know I was in the wrong somehow because I'm still thinking about all this. And if you have advice, I'd love to hear it. I just picked up Loving What Is by Byron Katie. And I think it's going to be really helpful. Here's what I do know. If we're living towards our highest selves, some things will change around us. Others will fall away. But what's that line from the story? Everything that is true never ends. Which is, of course, love. Love is also honor and respect. It is honesty. We can't be everything to everyone. That's okay. Especially if you're trying to change a pattern. To build upon an old pattern. And maybe... Once we're doing a little better, when we're a little stronger, some of those things which have fallen away will return and we can greet them with an open heart. So here's to change. Life is change. I hope these questions will resonate for you as much as they did for me. And I hope that you too will be a little nicer to yourself today, tomorrow. I'm loving these interviews. I've got more in the books. And right now, as I mentioned, there are some which are already online and available for your enjoyment. Via eveningskingdom.com, just click journal slash interviews to hear, for example, all about how Justin Aaron, the poet laureate of Martha's Vineyard, cultivated a secret parallel fantasy life that helped him survive his tough childhood. Art as a coping mechanism, a lover, and ultimately a spiritual practice. Beauty witnessing us just as we witness it. The magic of intention and how we may manifest our longings. For, as the ghost of the ancient shaman called Yale tells Uma in E.K., that which you seek is also seeking you. <laughs> All this brings me around to one of the loveliest things someone has ever written to me in all my life. <laughs> so after we recorded our conversation, I was texting with Justin, and he mentioned how he likes to listen to the podcast while he's on walks. I love this. Picturing him walking along between the old white houses there, the gardens. There's a wonderful stainless quality to the light on Martha's Vineyard. 
And I, as you know, have shy inclinations. I am not always great at the whole ask for what you really, really want thing. But I made myself do it. I'm looking at his text. I know he likes the story. So I'm like, ah, so if you wouldn't mind leaving a review, <laughs> it would really mean a lot to me because I'm hoping that if I can get enough reviews, maybe I can get an agent. Literary agents, they're getting hundreds of applications a day in their inboxes. I don't know how else the story has a chance. And he did. Justin posted this review that just, man, this guy, his poetry, I mean, and his photography. In art and life, I admire him so much. His way of being in the world, the beauty of it. And since our conversation, Justin's actually had He's been open to some experiences, to some otherworldly lovelinesses. I don't think he'd mind my mentioning this. I hope, too, that that's happening for some of you out there as well. When you listen to the interview, you can kind of tell they're coming for him. <laughs> so cool. So Justin's review, I'm, I'm actually not going to read it all here because <laughs> hand over my heart, holy shit. Thank you. It is so kind, and honestly, it says more about Justin than it does about my work. I'm most definitely not a shaman, but I'm so happy this story has been good company for him. If you're so inclined, you can read it on Apple Music, formerly known as iTunes, when you leave your review. <laughs> he writes, Paula, the images you paint are wonders on the screen of my mind. The depths you place into your characters make me wonder, how did you discover these truths? Has Paula lived these? And in our interview together, I talked about how I can't take full credit for Evening's Kingdom because I do believe a lot of books one and two came via someplace else. I believe that. But Justin, I think, and I know you think this too, we all have access to truth to the divine mystery at all times. It is us, and we are it. And we are so many experiences simultaneously, so many people simultaneously. So yes, I have lived it, and so have you. He mentions the Bhagavad Gita, which I haven't read in a really long time, but there is a line from it which has always hypnotized me, and I think about it often. We have no right to the fruit of our actions, only our actions themselves. I met Justin a long time ago, a few years ago, when I applied for a, a writing residency at the Noepe Center. The center was his baby, and he talks about its genesis during our interview. He accepted me on the basis of um, the first chapters of, of my first book. He even got me a stipend, which meant the world because starving young artist and... That residency was just incredible. Two weeks to ride on Martha's Vineyard in this gorgeous, sprawling white mansion of a house with a bunch of other writers. It was beautiful. And just to have him believe in me then meant the entire world. That was a lifetime ago, a pen name ago. But not long after that, again, these patterns. I gave up on myself as an artist for a long time. 
I have this endemic sense of shame around my writing, my failures, but I just can't not. The pen, the paper, they find me, the actions themselves. An evening's kingdom is my love letter to you, to all troubled idealists, especially anyone who feels adrift in modern society as I once did, as I sometimes, and perhaps forever, still do. Because life can be really hard. It can be so wonderful too, this universe, us, this divine energy, which is all of us, it loves to play, to learn, to just savor existence and non-existence and simultaneously, truly, this whole mortal coil thing is fucking awful sometimes, fucking hard. I make so many mistakes. I do. That's why I'm sharing all this stuff. People have said to me, oh, you're so nice. I'm not. I'm not at all the person that I want to be. Not yet. But with these words, with the intent behind these words, this story, I hope I'm holding space to help us all feel inspired and free. Uh, I told you this was a long one. If you're still listening, my sibling souls, happy journaling. And I would love to hear from you on all this. If we're crazy, let us be crazy together. Or rather, let's help each other to grow and reach the farthest chores. I'm so glad you're out there. And well may it please you, too. This is Polish Mint, and thank you for listening. Please stay tuned. The rest of the story is just down the road.